the ways that God teaches his people often is through repetition, continuing to bring up themes and lessons throughout Scripture. When we were going through the book of 1 John, you'll recall that there was this repeated emphasis on the love of the brethren, on, on our call to love our brothers and sisters and, and how to do that. Um, repetition. We see it, saw that theme come up again and again. The, the gospel itself is unfolded over and over again throughout the New Testament. The, the message of calling people to come and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior is unfolded over and over again in the New Testament. Next week, when we get to 2 Peter, there are themes that we'll see there that are similar to what we saw in 2 Thessalonians in terms of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the day of the Lord and living in light of that. And, and our reaction to all of these things can sometimes wrongly go toward, yeah, I know this, I've heard this, you've said this before, it sounds a little redundant. You know, that whole familiarity breeds contempt idea. If we do the same ritual, if we're taught a familiar lesson, if we really get to know the, a person really well, it, it, it's tempting sometimes to lose admiration, to lose respect in some degree for that person or that truth or that ritual. One of the things that we do here regularly at Grace Bible Church, and, and as do a lot of evangelical churches, is we participate on a monthly basis in the Lord's Supper. Uh, it's one of those things that it's, the potential is there for us to sometimes think, oh, I, I know all this, I've, I've thought about all this, and just kind of turn it into just sort of a, a ritual. This morning we're going to finish a, a, a two-sermon series, just last week in this, and it's on the topic of the ordinances. We've talked about baptism, and now we're talking about communion, and in particular we're talking about the connection between those things and, and church membership. And, and if that seems odd to you, if it's your first Sunday here, it's just these are things that the elder team has been thinking about and, and studying through over the, the, the course of this past year and, and really feels like these are important things for life in the local church and things that we need to speak about. And so we normally take part in the Lord's Supper on a monthly basis. There's no prescribed schedule in the New Testament other than do this often. Um, so there, there is a regularity to participation in the Lord's Supper that we see in the New Testament. Um, now and then people will ask, um, uh, we, we seem to do it on a different Sunday every month. Is there some kind of routine to that or schedule? And, and really that's simply a consideration for our children's ministry workers. Um, they, they typically are assigned to a particular Sunday in a month. And so we try not to do it on the same Sunday month after month because that makes it a little bit more difficult for them to have to juggle children's ministry responsibilities and being in here for the Lord's Supper. So um, that's why we do that. But if you turn to Acts chapter 2, and we'll begin there this morning, and we're going to bounce around a little bit in the scriptures this morning as more of a topical look, but, but looking at what scripture says about these things. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance, and by the word ordinance, we mean that Jesus ordained it, established it, if you will, and then commanded it, commands for his church, for believers to carry on this practice. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are the two ordinances that we hold to here at Grace. Uh, we looked at baptism last week. We read Jesus' command at the end of Matthew 28 when he said that in making disciples, you baptize them, that it is something that happens, that once a person is professing faith in Jesus Christ, they then move toward baptism. There seems to be a close connection between faith in Jesus Christ and then that, that public declaration of one's faith, public um, pledge, if you will, to follow after Jesus Christ that, that takes place in baptism. And so the New Testament pattern shows those who come to faith, 
being baptized, and then, as we talked about last weekend, being connected to a local body of believers. The letters of the New Testament are written to local churches, or they are written to those who are delegates of local churches, who are leaders in local churches, and how to live life in the local church. And so the expectation throughout the New Testament is that the believer, having been baptized, will now associate, connect to. Um, we use the, the practical application here of covenant membership, but it's essentially stating what we see in the New Testament. Become connected to, accountable to, involved in, engaged in, in a local community of believers. And so for that reason, as I said last week, um, when we talked about baptism, what, what we've done as an elder team is to try to draw a closer connection between baptism and membership. And what we've stated is that we would not be baptizing adults who do not desire to commit to membership. I talked about last week, if you've got questions, if that's sparking an interest, um, first I would encourage you, if you haven't already, we have the Discover booklet, which sort of describes a little bit about what we do and why we do it, and that's online underneath our uh, section on membership. Um, but I would encourage you to read lesson five in that where we address some of these things. But Acts 2 then goes on to show these believers baptized, committed to a local body, now participating in life in the body, regular aspects of ministry. Right at the, near the end of the chapter, Acts 2.41 says, so those who received his word, this is having followed up on Peter's preaching of the gospel, those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. These verses, particularly verse 42, gives a, a brief summary of local church life, of, of what goes on, what, what are some of the um, sort of expected aspects of ministry in a local church, and, and it speaks there very clearly about the teaching, the fellowship, the prayers, and the breaking of bread. So there's um, the gathering of the body to be taught from God's word, to hear from scripture, God's truths. There is the gathering of the body to fellowship, essentially sharing together, doing life together. There's the gathering to pray corporately. We, we pray individually as believers, but also corporate prayer. And then there is this breaking of the bread. And, and, and some may be inclined to say, well, that part could simply mean a meal. It could just mean that they got together to eat. It wasn't uh, uncommon for, um, just as we would do today, for bread to be sort of the, the beginning part of the meal and breaking of the bread to, to open up the meal. But in Acts 2.42, it's really a technical term. It says the breaking of the bread. All of these are preceded by a definite article there. The prayers, the fellowship, the teaching, the breaking of the bread. And so Luke, who's writing this history for us in the book of Acts, is referring to something that is a, a very specific element that is understood to be part of life in the local church. And Luke, who gave us Acts, uh, his first volume, of course, is the Gospel of Luke. And there in Luke chapter 22, he describes for us what it is that he's now referencing in Acts chapter 2. He describes Jesus on the night before his crucifixion, desiring earnestly to share in the Passover meal with his disciples. And it is there that Jesus transforms what is the, the celebration of the Jewish Passover, gives a, a whole new understanding to his disciples. He takes a cup of wine and he calls it the new covenant of his blood and he gives it to them to drink. And then in Luke twenty two nineteen, 19, it says, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. The cup and the breaking of the bread are staples to the Passover meal. The Jewish Passover meal is looking back to the deliverance of, of the Israelites from out of Egypt when a lamb is slain, an unblemished lamb is sacrificed so that the blood would be put around the doorpost and would provide deliverance, rescue for those who are in that home. And so that, that Passover meal becomes a, a commemoration of God rescuing his people, delivering, saving his people. And, and what Jesus is saying, he's now taking that commemoration of what has happened, and he is for his disciples saying, I now am that lamb. I am the one. It is my body and my blood that will provide rescue. And so for us now, the Lord's Supper becomes this looking back to Jesus Christ dying and Jesus Christ shedding his blood. He bears the wrath of God against sin and the penalty that our sin deserves is death. And so that's why we are commanded to participate in the Lord's table. It, it, it is a an act for us of remembrance, a time to commemorate the substitutionary death of our Savior Jesus Christ, the, the Lamb who comes to take away the sin of the world. It is us coming at the Lord's Supper to be drawn to see Jesus again on the cross, his blood poured out on our behalf for our sin. That was necessary to save sinners, the, the sinless one, Jesus gave himself in our place on the cross. And our, our sin is what demands God's judgment, God's wrath, but Jesus bore that in our place. And so there is, in the Lord's Supper, there is this memorial element to it where we are being drawn back, just as we were singing prior to this, being drawn back to consider the cross and what's been accomplished there on our behalf. But there's also a, a forward-looking aspect to the Lord's Supper, and we get that when Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in a verse we often read as we are taking the Lord's Supper, verse 26 says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim what? The Lord's death until when? Until he comes. So there's also this aspect of you are remembering what he has done, proclaiming the Lord's death, but you are looking forward to a time when all that is accomplished in the death will now reach its culmination when we are in the presence of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So there's also this sense of, of the bride, look, the body of Christ, looking forward to the coming of the groom to take the bride to be with him. Revelation 19.9 describes it as the marriage supper of the Lamb. We have been saved by Jesus, not simply for joy and peace and abundance in this life that he's come to bring in an abundant life, but it is also primarily even for the life to come. It is the fullness of our salvation is what we experience in the presence of Jesus Christ for all of eternity. And what we experience then is the full realization of what was first anticipated at the Passover and the rescue of God's people, the deliverance into the promised land, what's now pictured in the Lord's Supper of Jesus, what he accomplishes on the cross. And it's all pointing to that time when we will feast with our risen Lord and Savior and there will no longer be the need to, to celebrate the Lord's Supper in the same way. The saved people of God will be gathered into his presence for all of eternity. And so the Lord's Supper reminds us of what Jesus accomplished in our place. It anticipates the ultimate fulfillment of his work on the cross. Let's think, though, a little bit about the elements themselves in the Lord's Supper. 
the bread and the cup, as we often refer them to. We, we do not believe that those elements literally become the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. When Jesus said, I am the door, or I am the vine, we understand the, the, the symbolic significance, and yet there's a very deep reality when he says those things, in the sense that he may not become a door as we know, a swinging door on hinges, and yet Jesus is the way to God. It is only by coming through Jesus that we ultimately have access to God. And our relationship with God is described as being as intimate as a, a branch that's attached to a vine, that's actually connected to the vine. And so when he uses the I am the vine, he's speaking very clearly about our dependence on abiding in him. And, and, and so it's also right to step just a little further beyond simply saying that the bread and the cup are symbols. We often call the Lord's Supper by the name communion. We use a term that speaks of intimacy, of closeness, of communing with someone, of drawing in closely with them. And so part of what the Lord's Supper does is it depicts the intimacy of our closeness with Jesus Christ, our communion with him. Because the, the bread and the cup illustrate by, by faith that we, we consume, we take in all of the benefits and all of the nourishment that is supplied to us through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so while we're not eating the, the literal flesh or drinking the blood, at the same time, we are very much declaring as we take the Lord's Supper, we entirely depend on Jesus and on what Jesus did on the cross for the life that we have. The, the hope that we have, the, the nourishment that we have. It is on account of what Jesus has done. And so that is life-giving, his body and his blood. We are communing with Jesus, and we are humbly declaring that Jesus supplies all we need, not only for this life, but for the life to come. We are communing with Jesus. And then the, the last aspect in your notes under the, the meaning of communion is this communing with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this one sort of segues into the next section when we talk about the manner of, of the Lord's table, the idea that it's corporate. Um, we are communing with our brothers and sisters. We do the Lord's Supper together as a, as a gathered body of believers because that is what's pictured in the New Testament. That's what we see depicted for us in the book of Acts as the history is recounted. That's what we see in the instruction in 1 Corinthians. It is speaking to the, the gathered body and as a corporate act, it, it becomes a statement that we are all here on the same basis. We've all come on the same ground. We all are sinners who were in rebellion against our creator and who by grace have been saved and, and we are trusting in the same Savior and his work on the cross. And so it's a, a corporate act of communion. And one, and one of the places we see this, if you take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're going to get to chapter 11, which is where we typically would go when we're talking about the Lord's Supper. But there's an interesting statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul there is, he's chastising the Corinthians for idolatry. He's confronting them about idolatrous behavior. And we need to understand, we talk about the word idolatry. We're not simply talking about a carved 
wooden image or a, a, a metal image of some kind that people bow down to. That's a form of idolatry, but when we speak about idolatry, we're really talking about giving our hearts over to desires for things or persons or relationships more than God. I want this and, and I need to have it and it's going to affect my mood and, and make or break my day depending on whether I have this. That is a form of idolatry. That is me saying I've got to have this and that's more important than whether or not God can give me peace and contentment without it. So he's, he's commanding them here to flee idolatry, and, and, and then he makes what seems like an odd digression. If you look at verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. It's interesting that flee idolatry, let me remind you about what we do as we come together for the Lord's Supper and, and how we take the cup and the bread and we all take of the same bread. If you read further down in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you see that one of the particular matters of idolatry that he is confronting is their engagement in what would have been known as idol feasts, or at least as we understand it, these were gatherings within the community of Corinth at temples to other gods where meat that was sacrificed to the idol of that temple was then served. Now, understand in first century Corinth, as in much of the world, this was the this was the classy restaurant of the day. This was the dining out experience because it was good food surrounded by people that you knew from the community with all of this sort of spiritual undertone of, of the idol of that, that temple. So the, the problem becomes is now these people have come to faith in Jesus Christ and this has been a way of life. This is sort of a social kind of practical quasi-spiritual way of life and they're not detaching from it. They're still participating in it. And so that's what Paul is confronting in this passage, these new believers who are continuing this practice. And so in verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 10, he writes, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So you see the contrast that he's making. He's, he's brought communion in very purposely earlier in verses 16 and 17 because he's getting to this point to make this contrast between what you're doing when you go to this temple where the worship is of this false god is now you're communing with demons, you and the others who are gathered. In contrast to verses 16 and 17, and if you look again at those, at the verse um, 16 after yeah, I just want to read 16 again. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we are many are one body, we partake of one bread. He speaks of the, the cup of blessing, participation in the blood of Christ. The bread is being a participation in Christ's body. That Greek word for participation is the word koinonia, which may sound familiar. It's a word that we've often talked about in terms of it meaning fellowship. It's often translated in the New Testament as fellowship. It's the idea of community, of sharing. It's not 
simply fellowship as in we go to a meal and, and we all do the potluck together, and that's, that's koinonia. Koinonia is life together. It is sharing together and, and, and living life as believers, as brothers and sisters. What he's saying in verses 16 and 17 then is it's not just that you all participate in the same act at the same time, that you all sort of do this thing that's an activity at the same time. What he's saying is there is this mutuality to what goes on at the Lord's Supper that's actually similar to those who are going to the, 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 the house of the idol in the sense that there is a bond being shared there in terms of one's worship. There is a, a sharing together. And so as that bears on what we're talking about this morning in the Lord's Supper, this is really a picture of that corporate activity. We are sharing together in the bread and the cup. There's one bread that is shared amongst the body. One commentator, Gordon Fee, put it this way. He said, their singular existence as the people of God bound together to their Lord through the benefits of the cross and experienced regularly at his table makes all other such meals idolatry. He's not, he's not saying any kind of meal that we take together at a restaurant somewhere is idolatry. He's comparing what's going on here in this passage. And he's saying, no, that what we do as believers when we gather for the Lord's Supper is entirely unique. It is a sharing, a communing together. It is something that we do corporately. As the idol feasts, the people are communing with demons at the Lord's table. We are communing with other believers who share in common a faith in Jesus Christ that he is the one who has rescued us from our sin. He is the reason that we are related to one another as brothers and sisters, and we belong to him and to one another. That's why then when you go on to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you find that it isn't just a section on teaching the Lord's Supper. What it starts with is him chastising the believers in Corinth because of how they're doing the Lord's Supper. He's now going to go from the wrong practice of idolatry to now you're handling the Lord's Supper wrong because apparently from what he describes here, they've turned it into this kind of drunken feast at which some participants get really choice food and others are left behind. And, and, and the very divisions that go on in the world are now being dragged into the body of believers. And so he kind of summarizes it all at the end of 1 Corinthians 11, verse 33, when he says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. What the church does in the Lord's Supper is not a traditional fellowship meal, that, that, that's separate, but yet when we gather for communion, it is, a, it is the Lord's meal. It is a, a, a solemn gathering that recognizes what Jesus has done to save us, that he has given us life, but also then to demonstrate how we are joined together by that, by that, that life of Jesus Christ and our faith in him. And so the emphasis is, we eat the bread and we drink the cup together because our, our Savior's death is what brings us together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we do that both looking back and looking forward to the fulfillment of our salvation. And so this corporate nature of communion is there not only in 1 Corinthians, but it's also modeled in the book of Acts. In, in Acts chapter 20, Paul is in the city of Troas, and they've gathered. Acts chapter 20, verse 7 says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break 
bread. Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. What Luke refers to there in Acts 20 is what he'd already given us back in Acts chapter 2, and that is this breaking of the bread. It is this, this reverent gathering that's part of corporate worship. It is the body has gathered on the first day of the week, and part of why they have gathered is to take the bread and the cup and to commemorate the Lord's suffering and look forward to his coming. It is carrying out of the ordinance of communion. This ordinance given to Jesus by his disciples and commanded for us to continue to, to follow. One other thing on the issue of the sort of the manner in which we do this, and, and this is often where we look when we have done Lord's Supper in the past and continue to, and that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and that's the, the pause to consider the warning of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you look at verse 27, it says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Paul talking to believers, those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, believers who are in particular struggling with division in their midst that's even rearing its head at the communion table, and he is now confronting them on this and saying, essentially, that we're, we're coming to acknowledge the cross where Jesus bore the Father's wrath for our sin. So how arrogant would it be for us to come to the Lord's Supper and act casually about sin, act as if it's really not that big of a deal, that we can do what we want and, and get along with who we want to get along with and, and function as we want within the body of Christ. It really doesn't matter. It, it, it essentially then reduces the Lord's Supper to this sort of thank you ritual. Thank you, Jesus. Thanks for doing that. And, and we move on and, and nothing is, is changed. Nothing results from that. And, and what he's calling them to do is when you approach the Lord's table, part of the manner of that is acknowledging the high cost of sin that brought Jesus to the cross, that it was my sin that he bore on the cross, and, and, and I ought to approach it in a reverent way, understanding that. And that's why we take time before the bread and the cup. We, we typically allow a little bit of time in there to, to, to have self-examination. It's one of the reasons why when I send out the weekly email, I usually try to remember to tell you we're going to do Lord's Supper this week so that it's not just limited to that couple of minutes on Sunday morning, but it's really to approach the Lord's Supper with, with an attitude that asks myself some questions. Am I... Am I persisting in a pattern of sin, just in a, in a sort of careless, stubborn way? I'm just going about my sin, and, and I'm not dealing with this. I'm not pleading for help. I'm not repenting. Is there sin that, that I've done that I, I'm not confessing to the Lord? Is there unreconciled relationships that I'm, I'm engaged in? Are there people that I'm at odds with for some reason, and I haven't made any effort to try to bring peace to that relationship? At, at the Lord's table, we are shining this light on our intimacy, our communion with Jesus. And so as we approach the, the holiness and the glory of our Savior, we should do so with a reverence that takes time to consider my heart, and my thoughts, and my desires, and, and that freely confesses those things before him, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us.
With all of that, let me, let me conclude with, with just three applications of all this. The, the first two are related to what we've, why we've done these sermons, why we've focused on the ordinances. Um, we've included some language in the Discover booklet. And like I said, that, that's, it's not the Bible. It is our sort of description of here's why we do what we do. Here's what we believe the Bible teaches on this. And this is why we value what we value or practice what we practice. And so I've, I've put that language there. You should have it in your sermon notes. It says the Lord's Supper is for Christians, those who have turned from their sins and are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. The Lord's Supper is a corporate meal, all things we've been talking about so far. Since baptism is the initiating ordinance observed by disciples of Jesus, it is appropriate that ordinarily those who participate in the Lord's Supper have been baptized. Having said that, Christians who have yet to be baptized following professed faith in Christ are allowed to participate while being urged in obedience to Jesus to be baptized as soon as possible. All we're trying to do here is to be as consistent in practice as we can to the pattern of the New Testament. That is, when a person is saved by grace through faith, the ordinance of baptism is commanded that they then are making the, the public declaration of their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, making disciples, baptizing them, Matthew 28. And upon being baptized, the believers then added to the local body of believers, as we talked about last week, that connection from baptism to membership and then participation in the Lord's Supper is what the baptized believer does frequently as part of life within the local church. It is the, the ongoing act of the believer's obedience. To use the language of one writer, baptism is how you enter the king's palace, which is necessary before you sit down at the king's table. I think it's a great picture. That's in this little book. I, I had one last week, and I, I think most of them got grabbed on baptism. This one is, why is the Lord's Supper so important? Um, like any book, I'll, I'll always try to remember to caveat. Um, th there are things that you may go, I'm not sure. There, there's a little stronger emphasis here on membership being required for Lord's Supper. We wouldn't take it quite as far, but I will tell you that 99% of what's in here is super helpful if you're wanting to think more about the subject of the Lord's Supper and, and, and study this further. So there's copies up here. Please help yourself if you're going to read it. Please, please take one. Um, but throughout church history, there have been um, discussions and application of what has been primarily called fencing the table. The idea of saying that this is the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, and, and should there be limitations on who participates in the Lord's table. And so that's where that phrase fencing the table comes from. The individualist, individualistic, I should say, climate of Western culture tends to be pretty open about such things and pretty light in terms of, of those sorts of things, primarily within evangelical churches. Um, the, the, the common sort of fencing is, do you profess faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Do, do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and are you trusting in him? And if not, then most all evangelical churches would say you should not participate in, in the Lord's Supper. This is not intended for you. There's no uh, magical power that will somehow get you closer to God if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ. And in fact, there's no clearer way to approach the table in an unworthy manner than to do so from a posture of unbelief and to say, I don't really believe in this Jesus who, who says he died for my sins and rose again, then there's no reason for you to even be considering participating in the Lord's Supper. 
So are there any other fences to the communion table? And, and, and what we're beginning to say now as elders in the, in the Discover book is, is yes, we believe that the Lord's Supper is for those who have publicly professed faith in Jesus Christ through baptism. And, and what we've added in there is while we're not going to forbid someone who professes to be a believer but who is not baptized, what we intend to do is, is urge and say, will you consider baptism now as an act of obedience to Jesus Christ? We believe that's what Scripture teaches, that if you're professing faith, that you would consider baptism. Uh, let me be really clear here. What we've said is ordinarily those who participate in the Lord's Supper have been baptized. I, I would put it this way. We're not so much erecting a fence as we're putting up caution tape. Um, it, we're, we're seeking to take the opportunity at the Lord's Supper to urge you, if you've not been baptized, that we believe that's what the New Testament lays out as the thing you should be considering next. You should be making steps toward that. And if you are, and if you're not baptized, but you are already consciously thinking in that direction and moving in that direction, we obviously, we're not a church that does baptisms at, at, with every service or it's not available at every given moment. But if you are moving in that direction, then we obviously we invite you to the Lord's, Lord's table. Um, but it, it, it is to say that there can be a, a sense of being an unbaptized believer moving toward the Lord's Supper and completely ignoring the call to be baptized. And we believe the one precedes the other. The one's the initiating and the other's the ongoing. And so let me add, we also want to show grace um, to brothers and sisters in Christ who hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ and who were baptized as infants in a gospel preaching church and who are not convinced about the need for believer's baptism. Again, I would say to you, our aim is not to, to fence the table to those brothers and sisters. It is to say without reservation, we believe that the, 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 what baptism depicts and, and the way we practice baptism is the baptism of those who are professing faith in Jesus Christ, typically called believer's baptism. And we are asking you to consider that and we are urging you to consider that, but we still consider that we are communing with you as brothers and sisters in Christ. So let me give you a second application. This one has to do with children and the Lord's Supper. In the past, what we've typically done at Lord's Supper is we've encouraged parents um, that this is something for you to, to consider your child's understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to consider your child's profession of faith in Jesus Christ, and to come together and, and come up with what seems to be the best course of action at that point. And, and we're not going to say that anymore. Instead, really what we want to be able to now say is, if your child has not been baptized as a believer in Jesus Christ and is not in the process of moving toward baptism, then we would urge against your child's participation in, in the Lord's table. That really there's, there's an ordinance, there's a calling that comes first, and baptism is that ordinance. That, that does not mean, therefore, then rush to baptism, but it does try to set these in, in what seems to be sort of the New Testament pattern and the way that they should be done. There can be a tendency when we think of the ordinances, and I don't know if this is just Western culture, but, but it, it is sort of a tendency that we tend to think of baptism as the sort of public ordinance that's out there, and Lord's Supper is kind of the private individualistic one, and, and, and we're inclined to sort of see it as just between me and God. There, there is a very, and I've already alluded to it, there's a very personal communion between the believer and God that goes on at communion. That, that's true. There's a self-examination that goes on. It's very, it's very much me and God at that point. But in the New Testament, both ordinances 
are practiced within the life of the church. They are the, the corporate body together doing these things, and there is still a, that sense to it. And that's why we want to we keep making that connection from faith to baptism to membership to Lord's Supper. Not, not trying to be overly rigid on that, but also believing that that does seem to be the way the New Testament has laid it out. And so let me make this as, as simple and clear as I can. If you are not convinced that your child is ready to publicly confess his or her faith in Jesus Christ, or if your child claims to be a Christian but his or her life is not affirming that claim, then you would do really well to continue doing what you should do as a parent, teach, exhort, encourage, disciple, show them these truths, continue to exhort them in the gospel, continue to call them to faith in Christ, continue to do all of the things that parents are called to do when they nurture their child in, in the, the admonition of the Lord, when they bring them up in the, the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I'll add one last thing just in reference because we get these questions from time to time. Children, um, we've added a section in the Discover book on, on baptism and children just to help give you something more to think about. Um, it, it's, like I said, it's the Discover book, it's not the Bible. So if you have questions, you come away and say, I'm still not quite sure, please talk to one of the elders. We would love to engage with you on these things as you consider important matters regarding your children. Final application that we're going to make this morning is we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Um, we're, we don't ordinarily do communion on back-to-back -back Sundays. And so let me, let me explain that just in case you're wondering. Last week was an outside service. One of the things we love about outside services and why we do it four times a year is it gets us away from 8.30 group and 10.30 group and brings us together as, as one group. And so we try whenever we can to participate in the ordinances in some way when we are all together. If it's warm enough, there's typically baptism that goes on, and when it's not so warm like last week, we, we're trying very much to do Lord's Supper together because that's something we want to do together. So um, we're doing it back to back because, again, today I think our attention has been fixed on this. So let me speak just as, as we wrap up. If you are here this morning and you are not trusting in Jesus Christ as your savior, if you have never come to the point of, of believing that Jesus Christ has died for you and, and rose again, then, then, then let, me, let me dial back all of the membership, baptism, Lord's Supper stuff. I don't normally say this at the end of the sermon, but you can forget all that part. <laughs> and the, I appeal to you on this. We believe the Bible teaches that every man and woman has been made in the image and likeness of God, and that every person has also sinned against God, that God has established his law in perfect holiness, and that all of us are sinners who have violated and broken that law in word, in deed, in thought, and we have done it, and we have done it repeatedly. And because God is just and holy, he must punish sin. And the punishment that scripture lays out very clearly is death. It is eternal separation from the God who made us. It is away from his presence forever. But God did not abandon us in our sin. The God who is just and holy and who made us also set forth a plan of redemption from eternity past before we were ever created and set forth a plan that meant that God the Son 
would take on flesh, would come to earth, would live a sinless life, and then would give himself over to be crucified on a Roman cross. Not for anything he had done, but so that in that act of sacrifice, he would die in the place of sinners. He would take in that suffering on the cross, not simply the physical agony of the cross, but he would in the darkness of those hours on the cross also be bearing the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin, the just judgment that we deserve. And he died and he rose again. And in doing so, conquered, defeated sin and death so that you and I can not only be forgiven of our sin, but we can have life. We can have life with God that will participate in that marriage supper of the Lamb and will enjoy his glory forever. And so this morning, if, if you're here and you're pondering these things, what I would say to you is you can pray right where you are and say, God, I, I confess I am a sinner. I have broken your law, but I believe that Jesus Christ died for me and I am trusting in Jesus Christ to save me. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's the assurance of scripture. So that's my appeal to you. And, and, and if you come to that place this morning, would you afterwards, when there's some people up here praying with folks, would you come up and, and just share that with them? You will make their day and, and, and just make them so happy that they can pray with you and we can encourage you as you walk forward now as a follower of Jesus Christ and even begin to consider baptism. For those of you who have trusted in Jesus Christ, may I say to you this morning that this is going to be a time now as we come to the Lord's Supper, we're going to take a few minutes and, and just have some time of self-examination. I'm going to stop talking and I'm going to sit down and you're going to have a few minutes to just sit quietly and spend some time in prayer. And that's the opportunity to say, are there sins I need to confess and repent of before the Lord? Am I living in peace and unity with my brothers and sisters in Christ? And then after some quiet time, we'll distribute the elements and we'll take communion together. So spend some time in prayer, please.
Lord, as we speak quietly to you in these moments, we know that the confession of sin can bring a, should bring a right sense of shame. We see our sin, we see the glory of our Savior, and there is a sense of mourning at our sin. Lord, I just want to pray for my brothers and sisters here, because we also know that there is um, an enemy who, who longs to put an exclamation point on that shame to the measure that we would be driven further away from you, that somehow we would see in our sin that which separates us so far from you that we would shrink back and not draw near to you. Your word is so clear that it was our sin that was dealt with on the cross so that when we confess before you, we can know that you are faithful and just to forgive and cleanse your people and that you, like the father of the prodigal, are urging us to draw near, to not stay at a distance, but to come into intimacy. And so as we approach the communion table, it is with a sense of deep thanksgiving for the forgiveness of our sins that allows us now to commune with Jesus Christ in the most intimate of ways, to know that he is our Savior and he is good and loving, and that through him we have not simply been redeemed, but we have been adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. We thank you for that, and we thank you for this ordinance that we are able to participate in. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask those who are helping to serve, if you would go ahead and come forward. They're going to come around and, and distribute, and you will um, get um, a little It's cup and bread are together in here. Um, you can go ahead and open the bottom and take the little piece of bread out of there. But, but whatever you do, just hold on to it, and then we'll, uh, as we've been talking about, we'll take and eat and drink together in just a couple of minutes.